This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 ERLC National Conference, August 24th through 26th in Nashville, Tennessee. This year's theme is Christ-Centered Parenting in a Complex World. You go to erlc.com slash events for more information. At the end of the 20th century, the Southern Baptist Convention went through what is called the Conservative Resurgence a denomination that had been drifting liberal and was denying things like the inerrancy of scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, and other key Christian doctrines, particularly in some of its seminaries, had a resurgence and a turnaround and a return to orthodoxy. What was that experience like for those who lived through that time? Well, I'm joined today by my good friend, Dr. Bryant Wright, who is the senior pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, a church he planted in the suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, He's a past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the author of several books. We're going to talk to Dr. Wright about his experiences going to Southern Seminary at a time when it was very liberal, and some professors tried to shake him from his belief in the historicity of the Bible and the Uh, some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. We'll also talk to him about his experiences as a pastor and church planner in the SBC, why he invests a lot of time raising up the next generation of leaders. And my personal favorite, we will talk uh, extensively about his great love and my great love for reading presidential biographies. And I'm actually going to ask him which are his favorite ones. I think you'll enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with uh, a key leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Brian Wright. Bryant Wright of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church and a former president of the SBC. Thanks for joining me today. Glad to be with you, Dan. So um, there's a lot of places we could start. Um, one of the things I enjoy whenever we get to spend time together is uh, talking about your experiences in the SBC and um, your leadership in the SBC. Um and for, I think, a lot of younger SBC pastors that may not be, they're probably aware of the history of the Southern Baptist Convention and the kind of the conservative resurgence, uh, but aren't fully aware of just the magnitude of what happened. But maybe share a little bit of your experience. You know, when you went to seminary, uh, some Southern Baptist seminaries were kind of liberal and, and how that was. And maybe you could share a little bit of what it was like experiencing uh, during those times. Well, seminary was the most miserable experience of my life. There's nothing that's come close to it. And I I know poor Al Mohler probably cringes now. I've said that publicly so many times. But I also, when I say that publicly, I'm also adding how thankful I am of what has happened within our convention, within our seminaries, because we really do have theologically and biblically healthy seminaries today. But I went with a lot of naivete, uh, I was blessed with a wonderful Christian home. I was blessed to really come to understand that personal relationship with Christ through young life in high school. And my young life leader was uh, had really been discipled through navigators. So he was re- really big on teaching us scripture memory and a lot of those basic things. But I was also incredibly naive theologically. And so when I was really praying through is God called me to leave the business world and go into ministry, which I knew would be seminary, which I really didn't want to do after being out three years and was tired of school when I finished it. I went with a lot of naivete to Southern and 
just a, I would say, kind of a classic naive trust that you're going to get a healthy, biblically balanced uh, theological education. And I remember my first course, I uh, went to play racquetball with a pastor who was teaching a pastor in the urban church. It was a J term. And he said, tell me a little of your story. And I was telling him, and he said, now, you don't believe you got to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus to be a Christian, do you? I said, well, yeah. And I thought he was just playing the devil's advocate. But he literally put his arm around me and said, son, after you've been here six months to a year, you'll get over all that. Wow. wow. And that was just the beginning. I mean, that I was just the beginning. I and can't so, imagine that. Um, it, well, it's just, you know, it's hard to grasp today, as healthy as our seminaries are. But when you go to class day after day, and the sacred things of our faith, the sacred aspect of Scripture is belittled and mocked day after day. I just cannot tell you mm. how oppressive and depressing it was. And so I felt like I was just a fish uh, swimming upstream every day, some days desperately mm. clinging to a solid Orthodox biblical faith. Uh, I knew I'd be challenged. I, I wasn't uh, concerned about that. I think that's part of a healthy theological education. But you don't want to just get theological mush mm-hmm. in the classroom day in and day out, and that's what was happening. And so it was it was a very difficult experience, and I'm sure young guys today have a hard time grasping. I will say this, even though the overwhelming majority of my peers are either out of the ministry or in very liberal settings in ministry, uh, I became much more conservative, huh. biblically and theologically, and I'm sure part of it, from my standpoint, is I was just—it uh, was a reaction to the sterility I was seeing in liberal theology, mm. and uh, giving us more solid foundation of things I really hadn't given a lot of thought to before I went to seminary. It really forced you to kind of wrestle with those things. It didn't really it? did. So you know, God used that. I tell folks, God always brings good things out of bad experiences, and. Two other good things that happened. My prayer life soared. Oh, bad, yeah. Because when you're when you're living a life of depression, day in and day out, dreading to do what you got to do every day, man, those quiet times every morning that was the highlight of the day. And then at the end of the day, got real big into fitness and jogging. Both Ann and I did together, and that was just to run off the frustration. <laughs> but but the good thing is, we developed a lifestyle of fitness that has mm-hmm. stayed with us to this very day. So I know those are two wonderful things. Mm. that God did out of that experience. Was there a small group of conservatives that kind of hung together in seminary? Uh, well, you know, guys like James Merritt was pastoring out in the field and living in, in one of those parsonages by a small country church. So I re- we've never really crossed paths. We've become very good friends here in Atlanta, but just didn't know one another in those days. And I think that happens in seminaries. People are scattered out, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get through either making a living or serving in a pastor like that. But yes, you you certainly would gravitate. If you if you found any evangelical, <laughs> you would just it was like a magnet of having somebody to talk to. Yeah. Uh when you were going through that experience. There was one group, the summer missions group, a lot of them were uh MK missionary kids, and they had they had a heart for the world. And they sent out they would raise funds for about ten or fifteen of us to be sent out on a summer assignment somewhere in the world. And so that group was really a a good group for us to get to know, because mm. uh, they had a heart for the Lord and wanted to see the Great Commission fulfilled. And Ann and I got to go spend a summer in Scotland, which was a tremendous experience. It sounds like the glamour spot. We were 
staying in a nine by thirteen foot trailer on the North Sea with no heat or bathroom in it. So it was <laughs> it wasn't really the glamour spot that you you think in, in that kind of setting, but it still was a tremendous experience serving in a Scottish Baptist church all summer. So I want to ask you, you graduated from seminary and you were kind of present uh, during some of those key conventions during the conservative resurgence. Can you describe what it was like? I mean, some of those conventions had thousands and thousands of people filling stadiums. Uh, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was very different. Uh, I'll never forget the Dallas Convention, which was the climatic convention when Charles Stanley was elected, and there were over 40,000 people. We literally sat on the concrete floor uh, oh. over in a corner of that convention hall, and security was so great you had to have your badges uh, to get in and out. And uh, It was so intense, it was also depressing. It was just, it was depressing to see the church fighting like that. Mm. Uh, very thankful that men were courageous enough to intervene, but it's still depressing mm-hmm. when you see the hostility on the floor and the motions and the resolutions. We would just be emotionally exhausted at the end of the day. I, I also remember when I had first come, I, was, I left seminary to go, I knew I was going to pastor. But the Lord gave us a detour by going to be the first singles minister and begin the singles ministry at Second Baptist Houston with Evan Young that we had, my wife and I got to know in Columbia because he had he was pastoring First Baptist Columbia in those days, and he asked us to come out there. And so we had two and a half years there, and then as a young pastor starting Johnson Ferry in an empty doctor's office here in North Atlanta, I mean, we were just, we basically went to the annual conventions, and that was it. That was the extent of our our convention involvement. Uh, but I remember about the second or third year here, Dan, at Johnson Ferry, it was in New Orleans, it was hot. We had one of our boys that was a baby and, you know, carrying him around, and, and we lost our balance somewhere. And I remember as a young pastor, I just thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Should I even tell the church that I lost our balance? I couldn't even, because they wouldn't let you vote. You, I mean, you, you were history. You were toast. Wow. So... <laughs> It was that serious, you know, and I was just so embarrassed <laughs> that something like that happened. No telling where those ballots. Yeah, uh, it's probably up. safe now to tell the world that. Yeah, that that's right. I think it turned out I think okay. The, the church would forgive me at this point. <laughs> Were you surprised though that the conservatives won? Because you know, really, if you look through church history, it's it's pretty rare that denominations they typically drift left. It's rare that Absolutely. they recover and recover orthodoxy, isn't it? I don't know of any t- other denomination in American history that has recovered. Um, I think Southern Baptists are the only ones. And I'll tell you, it really was in doubt. There were, there were five to seven, eight years where you would go every year when a presidential election year was occurring, and you really did not know mm. who was going to be elected because uh, so many pastors were having teams come in. And, and a lot of that was probably why I kept arm's length from convention stuff for so many years. I was a young guy, church planner, mm-hmm. uh, back before church planning was cool. I was and, just going to say I, that before that was in vogue. It, you probably didn't that's have right. And the so kind I just of... was really focusing on building the church under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and God's guidance. And hmm. I, I just was so disgusted with the overall tone of things. Thankful that men were trying to change it, but I certainly would not be one of those guys that was really in the forefront uh, carrying the banner because I was just really focused on Pastor John Saferi and building a new church 
that was getting underway in those days. Because, you know, the Spirit, even with those that are right in a denominational fight, can mm-hmm. still be unchristlike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and you certainly had that feeling a lot of times. I mean, it was kind of like what you see in the polarization politically in America today. I mean, it's just both sides feel so intensely self-righteous that they are right. Mm-hmm. And either way, whether they're right or wrong, it's still a spirit that is a bit depressing <laughs> that you mm-hmm. that you see happening. And we were we were feeling that. So it was so God was blessing Johnson Ferry. It was really taking off, and it was a lot easier just to. Ignore all that convention stuff, except for June every year for three or four days, and yeah. then stay focused on our local church. Well, and then eventually you became SBC president. It's kind of kind of funny. Um, well, it really is ironic because <laughs> I really did not have much involvement for many years, and um, I, I, I think it's really the sovereignty of God. Dan, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I was even elected is just. Uh, I think that really is the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just wasn't in that. Um, that network of guys who have been out in the forefront uh, on all that. As I say, very thankful for what occurred, but just hadn't been out leading the charge. So one of the things that you're known for, I think, around the SBC is that you are very intentional about bringing in young pastors and young guys and pouring into them through encouragement or, you know, coaching uh, young pastors do you do that because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing when you're a young church planner, did you not find a whole lot of that? And is that something that you said, I want to do this whenever I have an opportunity? Absolutely. When I served at Second Houston, it was really a mentoring time looking back and being there with Edwin. Uh, the man's incredibly gifted as a church builder, and I learned a ton. And I just remember thinking, if the Lord one day blessed our ministry, I would love to pour back into young guys, but it would be many years before that became a reality. And his was not like a form. He wouldn't even have called it mentoring. I was just on his staff. But if you go in that kind of setting and you got your eyes open and you're watching, you're going to learn a ton. And also, when you're in a, a large mega church like that staff setting, you also have to unlearn things that just do not fit who God has wired you to be. And so I think in the first few years here at Johnsonville, I was still kind of finding my way, uh, taking the good things I had learned there, and yet also unlearning some things hmm. that just didn't fit our church culture or didn't fit how God has created me and mm-hmm. wired me. Didn't mean it was wrong there with Evan a second, just a different style uh, mm-hmm. of focus. But I think... Once a pastor hits 50, I wish I had begun this sooner, Dan. I, I can't tell you what a joy it is to mentor these young pastors. It's such an inspiration, guys, with a passion for God. And yet, I do think the millennial and some Gen X guys are really interested in learning from pastors who have experience today. There's a hunger for that. Well, and, and there's I, something, I think, too, about just as a as a young guy, I remember when I was a young pastor, to have a guy who has experience kind of put his arm around you and say, "Hey, you're going to make it. You're going to this is this is going to be good. You're God's man for this time." I mean, there, there's really something powerful there. I think. Oh, it's it's tremendous when you've got an older guy believing in. Obviously, that happened to me at Second Houston. It just wasn't as formalized mm-hmm. as what I'm doing now. And really, I began this early on 
through having teaching pastors on our staff with the one goal that they be with us three to five years, and then they go out and pastor somewhere else, building up the kingdom kind of mindset there. But it just became more formalized here in the last six years as I meet with pastors for a two-year period once a quarter, basically all day, uh, and just pour into them. And it's fun with this newest, every group's been fun, every group. But this newest group is is unique because I think three or four of these young pastors, it's a combination of Gen X and millennials, but three or four of them are churches a good bit bigger than Johnson Fury. So you say, well, what in the world can I offer those guys? Well, the one thing they don't have is the years of experience, and my passion is finishing strong. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do uh, to finish strong? You may be on fire and having a tremendous impact for the kingdom at 35 or 45, but can you do it at 65? Will you still be faithful at 68? Uh, Do you flame out? So I do feel that even though I'm learning a ton about church from these guys, just being around them, that is one thing that I can contribute in their life that hopefully will help them stay faithful for the long haul. The last couple of years... Uh, your church, uh, particularly the last year, your, your church has been in the news for some of the outreach you've done to help take care of and assimilate refugee populations there in, in Atlanta. Can you talk about why this God sort of put this on your heart, this kind of ministry, and what you've learned from it? Well, I think it really began to be put on my heart when I was serving as convention president and uh, our resolutions committee. Uh, was being chaired by one of our former teaching pastors, who's now the pastor at First Baptist Taylor, South Carolina, in Greenville area, Paul Jimenez, terrific guy. And uh, Russell Moore was on that resolutions committee when he was still dean at Southern. I had really not had any interaction with Russell before that. And the immigration resolution came up, and it was such a wonderful resolutions committee that that really began to put it on my heart, look, I need to address this with my own congregation. And so came back and preached on what the Bible says about immigration. Then, not far from that time, I think it was probably in the second year of convention leadership, the Syrian civil war broke out. And so we began to send teams, short-term mission trips is a huge part of what we do in global missions at John Sphere. So we began to send teams to minister to people that are 24-7, 365 days a year, to just go along and assist them, you know, help them uh, in their ministries. And, man, were our teams overwhelmed with the needs there. And then Ann and I went in the fall of 2014, and it just breaks your heart. It's just incredible what a humanitarian disaster it is there. And the scope of it is just so massive. But the the Muslims are so open to the gospel like never before. And we're having this opportunity to get the gospel to them where there really wasn't much access before. And also at the same time, about 2011-12, our congregation began to minister to refugees as a whole, refugees from all over the world in Clarkston here in Atlanta. This is a huge designated spot by the federal government for refugees to begin resettlement here in the United States. So all of those factors combined that when President Obama said he was going to open the doors for 10,000 Syrian refugees, we contacted World Relief and said, look, we want to be of help. We want to help these families get resettled. And so we started with one in December of 2015, and it's grown. We have 10 families, eight Syrian Muslim families, and two Christian Iranian families that we really have the responsibility for them and helping them 
to get settled here in the United States. And Dan, it's just been a hard to describe how enriching it has been to the congregation. I really hate to use that word when these people have suffered so much, but it really has been a spiritually enriching experience for our congregation because it's ministering to people who are hurting the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the press got into it with the 60 Minutes thing in New York Times and, and CNN and other uh, outlets because they were so intrigued that this congregation, overwhelmingly Republican in probably Orange County, California, and East Cobb and Atlanta are about as Republican a strongholds you got in the United States. Why in the world? is a church like this doing something that didn't seem to compute with their image of a Republican territory. So it's given us an opportunity to explain, look, we're, we're Christians first, we, and our guidance is the Bible, not talk radio or not our favorite news outlet. Our guidance is the Bible, mm. and that's what we got to follow on immigration and refugees. And it really is, you know, I'm sure it— um you know, doing this kind of work, whether we're helping uh, refugee families or we're, you know, helping any kind of, whether it's orphan care or foster care or any kind of care like that, I'm guessing it really stretches your church in a way and kind of forces us to to sort of get out of our comfort zone and, and do things it we does. might not it does. Uh, be used to doing, right? That's right. And, you know, some of the people, we, we really haven't had a lot of pushback from within John's period. Most of our criticism of helping the refugees has come from outside the church. Mm-hmm. But... From within, it's been pretty good because we've been such a mission-minded church, Mm -hmm. taking mission trips all over the world for years, that people have a, they just have a a greater world vision, I think, of the needs out there. But what I've tried to tell folks of those that were a little skeptical early on is, look, we we don't have the choice of who comes in the United States. That's the government's decision. That's not our decision. We really have no say in it. Uh, The criticism one uh, that we've often got, why don't you just minister to Christians Well, we don't have any say on who comes. We wish more Christian refugees could come, but we don't have any say in that. But Mm. we do have a responsibility as the body of Christ to reach out and love our neighbor, and especially our neighbor that is hurting. Well, there's no neighbor that's hurting like refugees, especially out of Syria. And what an opportunity, once again, to share the gospel as we share the love of Christ with these families. Just put yourself in, your, in their shoes. If you were to be dropped down in Syria mm-hmm. and have to learn Arabic and know nothing about how to go to buy your groceries and how to get your kids in school, and uh, just think how overwhelming it would be if you were put in that situation. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, I, our people have really, even the skeptical ones that are now serving in it have just talked about how it's really mm-hmm. just enriched their faith greatly. And, and and just soften their hearts so in seeing the needs of these people. Maybe talk about how pastors can shepherd their people to think uh, big like this, to think about the peoples of the world, whether they're coming here or whether they're overseas. Well, there's no doubt that God has used short-term mission trips as a catalyst for the global picture at Johnson Ferry. We were always a strong missions-giving church. But when our student pastor in 1992 challenged our high school folks to give up their spring break rather than going to Destin or Panama City or whatever and go through eight weeks of discipleship training and then go minister to the poorest of the poor on the border towns of Mexico, building housing, sharing the gospel, it, it was a galvanizing impact on those people who went. And what's happened over 25 years now, it's just just more and more people 
want to go each year on some kind of mission trip because they see that they can really be used by the Lord to have an impact. I fully understand the criticisms of short-term trips. I really do. I know that a lot of groups from churches go out. They're not prepared. They feel like they're going to go in and show those missionaries things they can do. That's that's the wrong way to approach it. You want to be sure that your people get training. You want to be sure that they understand that we never go into a situation where we're not invited or not welcomed or asked to come, and then we only go to serve. We don't go to show them how to do ministry. We don't go to come in and take over with some big plan. We go to serve those people who are 365 days there on the ground. And yet, I don't know of anybody, Dan, that has been called out of our church into full-time missions that didn't first go on a short-term mission trip. Mm. That's really where you get your toe in the water. Yeah, and really start to think about the 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 world beyond your that's right beyond your town or beyond your what you're comfortable with well if you're a parent like me you know that your kids are asking pretty difficult questions questions about race questions about gender questions about sexuality as parents how do we answer those questions well the ERLC is hosting a conference this August on Christ-centered parenting in a complex world. We're going to have a variety of voices and experts to speak. Russell Moore, Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jim Daly, Jen Wilkin, Crawford Loritz, Phil Vischer, Nancy Guthrie, Danny Aiken, Lauren Chandler, Eric Mason, and many more. So we invite you to come join us in Nashville on August 24th to 26th. And if you use a coupon code, WAYHOME, you'll get a 20% discount. So go to ERLC.com events and get signed up for the 2017 ERLC National Conference, Christ-Centered Parenting in a Complex World. So the last few questions I want to ask you before I let you go, and this is actually the real reason why I had you on the, <laughs> on the program okay. is, you know, whenever you and I are together, inevitably our conversation drifts to, hey, what presidential biography are you reading lately? Or what, what are you reading lately? And I, you, we both enjoy that. But um, you really enjoy reading biographies of great leaders. Why is that? Well, I just feel like you learn so much about leadership. I, I know I go about this all wrong when it comes to leadership books. I very rarely read a book on leadership. And I know that's that's all wrong, I understand. But I feel like I learned so much more from biographies. Because in a biography, you have, if it's a good biography, Dan, you, you don't feel like when you finish the book that you've learned something about the person. You feel like you know the person. A great biographer helps you know the person. And so reading a biography, you see the strengths and weaknesses of real-life human leaders. So I just feel like I learned so much more about leadership uh, reading biographies, especially presidential biographies or a Churchill or, or some great world figure like that. So let me let me ask you this. If you could list four or five of your favorite presidential biographies, uh, which ones would you would you list? I'm, that's probably a hard question to ask. A very hard like question. Asking, let's let's you know, start your favorite with the child, Lincoln but... ones. I think <laughs> the Ellen Kearns Goodman's Team of Rivals on Lincoln is great. Sandberg's, any of Sandberg's volumes whether it's the war years or the prayer years of Lincoln, are just mm-hmm. rich, 
rich material. I, I think Lincoln is the greatest. I, I, one of our elders argues with me Washington was the greatest to do what he did and, and only run for two terms and set that tone, not being a king. And, you know, you can make a great argument there, I realize. But what Lincoln went through mm-hmm. with the division of this nation, good night. I just cannot imagine the pressure and agony that man faced. Uh, I think um, traitor to his class on FDR, as well as Goodwin's uh, book, uh, no, what is it? No ordinary people or something. I forget mm-hmm. the exact. No time. ordinary time, I think. Yeah, maybe that's what it was on FDR. It was really good because he's a very fascinating leader. Also, at another crisis time mm-hmm. in our nation's history, in world, mm-hmm. both coming out of the Depression and World War Two, uh, both of those were excellent. Uh, I think first in his class uh, on Bill Clinton, uh, the guy, brilliant. Uh, it was in that book that it tells that when he was at Georgetown as an undergrad, he, he never went to class until after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Now think about that. It's two or three week period Wow. until uh, exams in December, but he was so wrapped up in politics and working in the Capitol for Senator Fulbright that he would just then get copies of the notes of his fellow students. Wow and study their notes, and he became a Rhodes Scholar. Well, that's a level of intellect I can't even really... <laughs> can't even I couldn't really get connect. away with that in seminary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I would love to have that yeah. ability. I'll tell you one of the greatest presidentials, though, is, is uh, Robert Caro's mm-hmm. LBA volumes. Now, that is off the charts good. Mm. And really, Democratic presidents are a lot more fun to read about because there's, so there's so many more rogue scoundrel characters. It's just a lot more entertaining reading. <laughs> that's funny. All the Republican biographies are kind of boring. Yeah. I'll say the first one on uh, Path to Power on mm-hmm. LBJ by Robert Carroll. That is like reading a history book of the development of Texas along with mm. LBJ. And then Master of the Senate was also really good, too. But um, I, I think uh, George Bush did very good on his uh, 10 crisis points, uh, decision points or whatever. I'm terrible about reading a book and forgetting the title. Mm-hmm. But that was another good one that I really enjoyed. He's, I think. You know, the press made him out to be a nincompoop, but he did go to Yale and Harvard. I mm. think that's mighty insulting to those institutions that they were constantly mocking his intellect. He, he read a hundred books a year as president. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I'm like, people yeah. act like he, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this is great. I, I love this stuff. And uh, I just want to say I appreciate your leadership and appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing some of your experience and insights and what you're doing at Johnson Ferry and kind of the example for younger pastors like myself, and uh, just want to thank you for uh, coming on the podcast today. Well, it's sure good to be with you, and I really encourage the pastors that are boomers that hear this to think about a game plan for mentoring younger pastors. Hmm. I just think it's really, it'll rejuvenate you as an older pastor, as an experienced pastor, but it also is pouring into young guys that hopefully will benefit the kingdom for years to come. So I hope that'll happen, and I hope your younger guys won't hesitate to reach out Mm. to an experienced pastor that they admire, because it may be they've never been asked or never even thought somebody would be interested. Mm. And there's bound to be somebody you know that maybe lives close by that they could reach out to and say, I'd just love to visit with you once a quarter, have lunch, whatever. Take advantage of it. Well, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. All righty.
Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delft. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.